some uh, years ago now, in a previous ministry context, I had the opportunity to do, um, what do you call them, uh, church services, for want of a better word, in an aged care facility. It's quite a challenge, because for a season they were done after lunch. So you can imagine... I had to really be on my toes. About once a month, I went out there, I think it might have been the first or the second week of the month, alternating with the Presbyterian Church and the Uniting Church. Then at the end of the year, we got together and we did a combined Christmas service. And as was typically the case, Alec, my friend from the Presbyterian Church, organised the service. He liked to have some oversight in that space. And on this particular uh, day, just as the service was about to commence... Alex, who had brought along the Presbyterian Church Choir, which just quietly between you and I was made up of about 12 people who were somewhere between 85 and 100. Um, uh, Alex said to me, oh David, would you mind singing with the choir today? Uh, we're doing We Three Kings of Orientar and he handed me a piece of sheet music and he said, you're going to be singing the part of Gaspar. Yeah, I'm looking at some confused faces because I, I didn't even realise those dudes that turned up had names. I mean, obviously they had names, but I didn't know that we knew their names. And so I looked at the music and I looked at the words and I thought, my goodness, this is going to be kind of interesting. You might be familiar with this song. Uh, let me see if we can... I'll turn that on, that might make a difference. Um, you might be familiar with the words, We Three Kings of Orient. I don't know what's going on with, <laughs> I don't know what's going on with my PowerPoint. Erwin, it's got nothing to do with you. But when I pushed it over into our uh, program here, uh, I've lost some, uh, some moo and mountain. Well, enjoy it. Let's sing it. Star of wonder, star of... No, there's a word missing. A star with royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light. Now, I'm sorry, there are some words missing off uh, your screen there, but they weren't missing off the, um, off the sheet music that Alec gave me. And so this, this started, and in the middle of it, suddenly I realised this part of Gaspar, the third part, was actually a solo part <laughs> and so we've gone through the first two kings and we come to Gaspar's part and here I am suddenly the focus of all of the attention at this aged care facility with the 20 or so people who are sleeping and the <laughs> Presbyterian church choir and and suddenly I've got to sing myrrh is mine it's bitter perfume breathless life of get sorry breathes a life of gathering gloom sorrowing sighing bleeding dying sealed in the cold stone tomb oh, oh star of wonder star of light star with royal beauty bright Westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light. You've done very well. <laughs> Afterwards I said to Alec, if you ever <laughs> so much as breathe a word of the fact that I was singing with the Presbyterian Church Choir to a member of my congregation, 
I will visit your house <laughs> at night. <laughs> and so far as I know, to this day, he's never said a word. <laughs> now, as we come to our text today from Matthew, I hope, um, let's get rid of all of those terrible words. I hope that after last week's message, as we unpacked uh, some of the um, myths around the birth of Jesus that nobody went home and threw out a heap of Christmas cards. I do understand that there's at least one member of our congregation who's got a nativity scene he's offering to sell cheap, so <laughs> you, can, you can have a talk to Cliff about this later. Uh, but this week, <coughs> I do want to uh, turn our attention to the story around Christmas of the appearance of the Magi, as it's recorded for us here in Matthew chapter 2. One of the disappointing things in some senses is that there has become so many things attached to the Christmas story, we actually lose the thread of truth. And the thread of truth is, as I said last week, more wonderful than the myth. What's actually going on in this story, as we will today throw out some of the untruth and actually uh, focus in on the truth, reveals to us uh, the sovereign hand of God in a wonderful, special way. And so I genuinely hope that there's nobody here going, my goodness, I've gone home from church again depressed because I've got all of these nativity scenes that are wrong, all these Christmas cards are wrong. That's not the point. Let's get back to the heart of the message of the Scriptures. This morning we turn our attention to the Magi, these wise men who came from the East. And the Scripture tells us even less about the Magi than it does about the birthplace of Jesus. And so in the finest tradition of humanity, what we don't know, we fill the gaps with our imagination. Did you know that they turned up on the night that Jesus was born? Except the Bible doesn't tell us that. There were three of them, although the Bible doesn't tell us that either. They came on camels. The Bible doesn't say that. I think the camel that took off in America this week, you might have seen the news, a camel part of a nativity scene somewhere in the States managed to do a runner, realising that uh, it had been seconded into the role under false pretenses, potentially. <laughs> they are known as kings, we three kings of Orient are, except the Bible doesn't say anything about them being kings. Park this thought, though, for a second. When they turned up in Jerusalem, who was the first person they went to see? Herod. And they got an audience with Herod without any trouble, it would appear. So these guys were not some kind of random kind of dudes from nowhere. These were significant, significant men. We know that their names were Belshazzar, Belt, Belshazzar, Melchior and Gaspar. I'm very familiar with Gaspar, uh, except the Bible doesn't give us their names at all. And they came respectively from Arabia, Persia and India, but again, the Bible doesn't tell us that. And bless his heart, the Apostle Thomas converted one of them to Christianity during his evangelistic campaign in India. But there's nothing in the Scripture about that either. So we're not doing so well. Here's some things that we do know. We do know that Epiphany Sunday, traditionally the 6th of January, celebrated in, uh, in some branches of the church, is a Christian feast day dedicated to these three characters. We know that in the Middle Ages, they became venerated by the church as saints. Their relics, that is, some of their bones, 
were discovered by the eastern branch of the church around the 4th century AD. They moved them to Constantinople and then to Milan. And ultimately, if you want to go and check this out, you can find some of their relics preserved in the Cologne Cathedral in Germany. So if anyone's travelling through Cologne in the next 20 years, once the borders are open, you can actually go and see uh, what are alleged to be their relics. There's a whole lot of myths associated with uh, these men and so it will help us to do some forensic reading of the scriptures to discover where the truth actually lies. Rather curiously, Matthew is the only one of the gospel authors who mentions them. Now this ought to pique our interest because Matthew's interest when he wrote the gospel, each of the, the, uh, the gospel authors had a different focus which helps explain why some included certain stories and others didn't why some put some of the stories in different order to the others. Nothing wrong or unusual or out of context about that. But Matthew was, a particular, uh, sorry, Matthew was particularly interested in the kingship of Jesus, Jesus as king. So it kind of makes sense, doesn't it, that he would record this element of the birth narrative. The other gospel authors, Luke in particular, not so interested in the kingship of Christ, didn't include this story. It doesn't mean that the stories are myths or that somehow they're just made up and they didn't get the story straight. It's just because the authors, uh, both had, Matthew and Luke in particular, both had a different emphasis or a different focus. We do know, let's just uh, throw up another slide here, we do know that they came from uh, over here towards the east in Persia. The map that is up on the screen is of the Persian Empire when it was... Um, at its peak, probably uh, some years before Jesus, of course, uh, but it was an area these guys came from in modern-day Iran, what's uh, previously been known as Persia. And it makes some sense because that area of the world had a very strong tradition of magi or wise men. It was also an area that had been strongly influenced by the Judaistic faith, by Jewish religion. Uh, and that was because when the Persians came and overpowered Israel, they carried many Jews back into Persia with them. The Magi, as we understand them, were not sorcerers who tapped into the demonic. We Last year, or was it the year before, I can't remember now, we looked at Simon in Acts, a guy who used spiritual power to do his work. These guys were not into that kind of magic. They were according to the tradition of the time, well-educated, probably very wealthy, uh, religiously-oriented scientists who put a lot of effort into studying astrology and astronomy. They read the ancient texts and they were respected internationally for their work. It was a legitimate science. And strange though it might sound to our ears, in those years, uh, the study of the heavens was not considered to be hocus-pocus. You know, I like to go and look at the stars, but... I don't worship the stars. Uh, in those days, uh, this whole business was considered a very legitimate science. And it was actually believed, and this is attested to in literature outside the Bible, that if an eminent person was born, there would be a star appear. And so the story of the star over Bethlehem has some deep credit in ancient literature. It's also possible, and if you just follow with me on this one for a bit, uh, that they were devotees of a religion called Zoroastrianism. Now, who's familiar with Zoroastrianism? That's 
I'm not seeing too many hands. There's one or two kind of reluctantly popping up their hands. <laughs> uh, Zoroastrianism was a religion founded by the prophet, whose name, interestingly enough, was Zoroaster, in the 6th century BC, which had as its emphasis, the Zoroastrians taught there was one transcendent God, that is God apart from creation, that there was a heaven and there was a hell, and it was a religion that also looked for a, messi a messiah figure, a messianic figure, someone who would come as a messiah. Now, if you put all of this information together, the location, the times, the study, the Zoroastrianism, uh, where these guys come from, we start to be able to join some dots. It's very, very possible, in fact, I think highly likely, that these Magi had access to the prophecies of Balaam. Now, we need to just do a little bit of context there, go back to um, the book of Numbers, uh, Numbers chapter 24, Balaam, who was a prophet, uh, who was, uh, uh, encountered the Jewish people, the people of Israel back then, said these words, a star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. So these Magi would have taken this piece of information, ah, a star will rise out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. They knew that a star would indicate something significant, but they had no idea when this star would appear. They knew about the star, but they didn't know when it was going to appear. They needed a timetable, and in God's good grace, God gave them the timetable. Because remember, they came from over here in Persia, where uh, the Israelites had been taken in exile, where Daniel had been, and Daniel had actually, in his vision, uh, recorded uh, these words, chapter 9, uh, these words in chapter 9, verse 25, which says this, No one understand this from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes. There will be 77s and 62 sevens. So you see how there's another piece of the puzzle suddenly fits into play. A star will rise. It'll happen in this time. And so these guys who were well-educated, carefully studying these things, had two very important pieces of the puzzle. One piece of the puzzle was missing and that is where the birth was to take place, where this special person was to come from. And so jumping ahead a little bit in the story, what they do and following the star is head to Jerusalem. Is that the place? No, it isn't. Makes sense that they went to Jerusalem. But they went to Jerusalem and they consulted with Herod. Why did they consult with Herod? Well, it would make sense, wouldn't it? that uh, something special was going on in Israel, you would go to the guy in charge and ask him what the story was. But he didn't know. And so Matthew tells us here in Matthew chapter 2 that Herod consulted with, uh, let me have a look at the actual verse here, uh, he consulted with the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, this is verse 4, and he asked them where the Christ was to be born. And they went and did a bit of thinking because they had studied the scriptures and replied uh, in verse 6, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. The third piece of the puzzle. The where. Very, very interesting, isn't it? Uh, you know, if you, again, as I said earlier, when you strip away some of the dross, I just find it incredible that God, through history, has been putting in place all of these puzzle pieces 
a thread, a trail that could be followed to the birth of Christ. But these guys who came from way, way over here in Persia, relying on information that came nine centuries before, were able to follow to the very place. How good is God? How good is God in bringing things together? Well, as we know, it wasn't just their study that led them to Judea. There was a star which, according to uh, Matthew, they saw rise in the east. Now, I've always scratched my head a little bit about this because if, indeed, if you look at that map, the star rose in the east and they followed it east, they'd probably end up in India. <laughs> Wrong direction. But I think what's, uh, what Matthew's wanting to communicate there is the star rose where they were over in the east and it was a rather special star. It wasn't just like one of our normal stars. Thank goodness for that. Because if it had been, and it had settled over the house where Jesus uh, was born, it would have obliterated the whole planet. It was a special star. What can we deduce about the star? Well, it was personal. It was a star that they came looking for. They said, we have seen his star. So it related to the one who was being born. It appeared and disappeared on a couple of different occasions. It moved from east to west and it moved from north to south, leading them in that direction. And so with that information and under the leading of that star, they set off. As I said, uh, they came to Jerusalem and they went to the very place where they thought they'd find the information. After all, Herod should know what was going on in his own backyard, right? And yet Herod was scratching his head. I'd love to have seen that conversation. Now these guys turned up and asked Herod, and Herod said, oh, I've got no idea. The one who was actually meant to be the guardian or the custodian of, uh, of the Jewish religion, in their eyes at least, um, had no idea. And so the Magi may well have been a little bemused by the fact that the people generally who were the custodians of the prophecies, the Jewish people, the ones who should have known and anticipated the Messiah, really had no clue. I find that funny. But then I'm also chastened by this realisation, and perhaps you've had this experience too. There have been occasions in my life uh, where I have been in a situation, some kind of a context, whatever it might be, and somebody who is not a Christian has actually behaved in a more godly manner than I have. Have you ever had that experience? Every now and again, uh, when, you know, I won't give away too many tales here, but if something's happening within the family, um, I might be reminded, you're the grown-up here, remember? In other words, don't behave like one of the children. Not that my children aren't grown up now, just hasten to say but isn't it sad that sometimes people outside the church actually live lives that are more reflective of God's nature and character than some Christians, than we do sometimes? That ought to just pull us up short on occasions and remind us that uh, the Holy Spirit's still in the work of convicting. And certainly there have been times when I've not done what I should have done or said what I should have said God comes and just brings conviction in that space. But then I wonder too whether Herod's ignorance was also part of God's overall plan. For in Matthew 11:25, Jesus himself lamented the unbelief of uh, the citizens of cities like Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. And he said these words, I praise you, Father, 
Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. It wasn't the wise and the learned in Jerusalem who had all the answers. So when did these guys arrive? This is a really interesting question because our nativity scenes that we have at home are jostling shepherds, cheek and jowl by, uh, with wise men. When did they come? Let's, um, let's do a little bit of um, detective work. This is going to be quite good fun. This is, not, um, this is not working either. The whole work I put into this is out the window. Anyway, we'll work with it. The line on the bottom is our timeline. That's a line you can see there from the birth of Jesus to the arrival of the Magi. When did it happen? Well, it happened, the scripture tells us that it happened during the reign of Herod. That doesn't actually give us much help. That means um, it, uh, you know, it could have been at any point along the line. Matthew says that they arrived after Jesus was born. Uh, that could have been 10 minutes or it could have been 10 months. That doesn't help us a lot. Matthew says the star, which you'll see up there, Luke chapter 2, verse 2, stopped over the place where the child was and that it was a house. That doesn't help the timing question either. But it does actually add to something I said last week, that Jesus wasn't born out in a stable. He was born in a house because the star stopped over a house. Hold that lightly because again we don't know exactly what the timing was when that happened when they'd gone joseph was warned in a dream to get out of town in verse 13 we didn't get to that he escaped to egypt and so he did immediately so we've got a little bit of help in our timing here we know that after the magi had been joseph and mary and jesus took off to egypt Luke chapter 2 verse 21 is quite helpful. It tells us that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, which was a family ceremony done according to the law. And then Luke 2.22, after the time of purification was complete, Mary and Joseph took Jesus to the temple to be presented. So uh, that took place on uh, the 40th day or shortly thereafter. And then after that, sometime the family fled Herod ordered the massacre of all boys in the vicinity, two years old and under, in accordance with the time that he'd learned from the Magi. So when we assemble all this evidence and this wonderful PowerPoint, which I took so long to put together, which looks like a dog's breakfast now, and we're going to have to deal with that, uh, would suggest, so forget all that for a second, would suggest that the Magi turned up no earlier than 40 days after Jesus was born because... They escaped to Egypt immediately after the Magi had visited. So it could have been somewhere between 40 days and 18 months. We don't know for sure. We don't know for sure. There's a very, very good uh, uh, set of evidence here to suggest that it wasn't on the night of the birth. Some people too have wondered why it was that Herod ordered the, the uh, slaughter of infants under two. Now, if it was only three months after Jesus was born, why go to two? Well, that could be because Herod was a maniac. It could also indicate that the time frame had extended for more than what we might normally imagine. Let's just quickly unpack a couple of other myths. How many of them are there? We think three because of the gifts that they bought. Three gifts, three wise men kind of makes sense, but it's an assumption. It might have been two. There had to be more than one. There might have been more. It's very, very unlikely that three wealthy, important men would have travelled alone 
uh, during these times. They would have required a caravan of some substance. They were obviously rich and so they would almost certainly have had servants and security details and so forth. Um, what were the gifts that they brought here? We are on slightly safer ground because Luke tells us really clearly they brought gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. What is the significance of these gifts? How were they used? Well, again, in each case the gifts were very valuable. Even a small amount of gold is very valuable. Has anyone got s some gold other than jewellery at home? Gold nuggets, um, stuff you've sieved out of the creeks around the place? We have a tiny little bit that we guard with our lives because it's taken hours to find. Very, very valuable. Over the centuries, people have speculated as to why these gifts were given. Some have suggested gold symbolises kingship, frankincense, a symbol of deity, and myrrh, which means bitterness, a symbol of death. And it's a nice, neat kind of uh, a theory. Some have suggested if that's the case then it's pointing to Jesus as King, God and Saviour which is also a, a lovely neat theory. We are still in the realm of speculation, we don't know for sure what they mean. However we can say these were the kind of gifts normally presented to a king which picks up again uh, Matthew's emphasis on kingship. And what happened to the gifts is a mystery too, what did happen to them? Expensive. Uh, very uh, important kind of gifts. There's a story that says the gold was stolen and in a curious twist of fate, the ju uh, uh, sorry, a curious twist of justice, uh, the two thieves who stole it turned up on the cross, one either side of Jesus. There's a ripper for you. Some scholars actually would dismiss that and I think they probably do so with some justification. Uh, but they have an alternate theory which would suggest that the gifts were part of, gold, uh, of God's provision. Because Joseph and Mary and Jesus had to flee to Egypt and they needed financial capacity to do that and God knew that. And so these gifts, particularly the gold, were the financial means that God used to sustain the family in Egypt. What we can say, though, is that the gifts were appropriate to the king that they expected to find. And perhaps, um, having dismantled all of that stuff, let's rebuild some important things that we can see from these characters. What can we say positively about them? Well, first of all, they took the scripture very, very seriously. They read and believed the prophecies that God left in his word, and the scripture's full of these. And in our day, it's a challenge for us to drill into the Word of God and understand what God is saying to us too, just as the wise men did in those days. I was speaking to one of our congregation members recently and made the point that uh, when it comes to the second coming of Christ, God hasn't told us when it's going to happen, but He has told us through His Word that it is going to happen. And so we need to be ready. We've got to have our bags packed in the same way that these guys packed their bags and headed to uh, Judah, Judea. Another observation we might make is this, they sought Jesus and that's a great starting point. One of the great invitations of Christmas is to come and see Jesus, to invite friends to come and see Jesus. Our role is not to convince them that he is the saviour, 
that's the role of the Holy Spirit, but we are the ones that can make the introduction. They recognise the worth of Christ. The whole reason that Matthew included them in his gospel is to highlight the kingship of Jesus and this has significant implications. Because if a, pe a person is truly king, that uh, immediately has consequences, doesn't it? It immediately changes the dynamic of the relationship between us and that person. And so it's good at Christmas time to intentionally take another look at King Jesus and what are the implications of that. These guys humbled themselves. They were men of some import and yet they fell in worship before the King of Kings. And finally, one of the really significant things that they did was obey God rather than men. And this is a question more in our minds today perhaps than it's ever been before in our lifetime at least. What does it actually mean to obey God? rather than people around us. Herod said to them, I want you to come back and make a report. And it's nice, isn't it, to be invited into the halls of power. If you were extended an invitation for the Prime Minister, would you accept it? Most probably. It's lovely to rub shoulders with important people. I had an experience a few years ago uh, with an invitation to... Uh, a uh, what do you call those things, not a garden party, a sort of an afternoon tea thingy with the Governor-General. And so along I went, dressed up in my suit, which I keep for very special occasions like funerals and Governor-General's appointments and things, and, uh, and chatted to a few people and after a while found myself feeling very much on the outer because this was the Mayor and, you know, the CEO of the city and the CEO of the cheese and butter factory and all these important people, the head honcho for the water authority and whatnot. And so I went and talked to one of the security guards and I think I learnt more about stuff that day than if I talked to anyone else. But it's nice, isn't it, to be invited into the halls of power and yet these guys recognise the danger of that. The request to return to Herod must have been very, very seductive. But the question that we need to be asking ourselves is what do we most want to be known for what do we want to be known by and who is it that God calls us to spend our time with the wise men knew better than to be seduced by human power and so the Bible tells us that they went home another way and that's all we know what a wonderful story and it's a story that points to Christ as King the focus of Christmas. Let's pray as we conclude. As, uh, as we do conclude, let me just uh, say if anyone here this morning would like prayer, there's an opportunity uh, towards the front here, just um, quietly off to the side or wherever. Uh, otherwise, we'll exit through the door just in front of the sound desk and um, Josh and Emma, I think, are firing up the coffee machine out there again. So take advantage of that if you need another kick. Otherwise let's pray. God bless uh, us today we pray as we move from this time of worship of gathering. Lord we thank you again today for your word which when we drill into it reveals to us truth which is just delightful, surprising, encouraging, challenging and life-changing. Today we pray you'll help us to humble ourselves just as these guys did before the King as we come to this Christmas time, let our eyes be on King Jesus. For you, Lord Jesus, are the one that we glorify today. It's your name that we honour. And we go in your strength. 
We give you thanks for one another, for the opportunities of this week. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you once again for being with us today. Feel free to stay and chat, otherwise uh, the doors are open now. You'll be able to move out uh, as you feel free.